Hey friends, good morning. It's good to be with you. We are going to be in 1 John together. And uh, it is an honor to be here. I have uh, found it a joy just to follow your journey ever since as a church from uh, the beginning. And now as we kind of dive into this 8th anniversary uh, service, I asked uh, uh, Joey how many places you guys have had, and uh, um, some of you don't even have a clue, but uh, five locations uh, in the life of Restoration Church. In our church, we had nine locations in the first four years. We used to say, if you can find us, you can worship with us. We were everywhere. So this is the world of church planting, but it is a joy to be able to follow God and to be able to be together. So whether you experience this whole journey or whether you're brand new to Restoration, um, I just want you to know that God has blessed you. I am shown Jesus by these pastors that you are shepherded by. I know this. They love you. They pray for you. They agonize over you. They strategize for you. They worship with you not to impress you, but to serve you because they love Jesus. They faithfully feed you God's Word and they teach you and are teaching you to be self-feeders not just consumers. I have traveled the globe and I have seen hundreds if not thousands of churches and pastors. And I want you to be encouraged that you have top-tiered leadership who love Jesus. And I encourage you in this because it can get wearying when things get hard. And we can fool ourselves to believe that the grass is greener around the corner. There might be some other place that might be easier. Friends, I just want you to know, as long as God has you here in this area, I encourage you to stay put and to love large because you are being shepherded by a great godly group of men and women. I am so thankful to God for this church and we pray regularly for restoration. And they didn't pay me to say any of that. They didn't even know I was going to do it. So I just come and I just say, I commend uh, this church and I commend you to one another and I'm thankful to God. Living in church together as a family is just flat out hard. But any relationship worth having is going to be messy. So don't let mess make you run. May it make you press in. So, okay, that's it. That has nothing to do with the sermon. First John chapter four. I'm going to read verses uh, chapter four verses seven through uh, nineteen. First John chapter four verses seven through nineteen. I'm going to read, and then we have prayed a lot, but I am going to say a, a brief prayer, and then we will dive into the scriptures. First John chapter four. Verses 7 through 19. The Word of God reads as follows Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. In this, the love of God has been made manifest among us that God sent His only Son into the world so that we might live through Him. And this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, 
we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and His love is perfected in us. By this we know that we abide in Him and He in us because He has given us of His Spirit. And we have seen and testified that the Father has sent His Son to be the Savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in Him and He in God. So we have come to know, hear this, we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us God is love, and whoever abides in love abides in God, and God abides in Him. By this is love perfected with us so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment because as He is so also we in this are we in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear, for fear has to do with punishment. And whoever fears has not been perfected in love. And here's the last verse. We love because He first loved us. Let me say a brief prayer. Father in Heaven, the only way we can love our neighbor is to be overwhelmed that You have first loved us. And so Father, convince us, overwhelm us, fill us, encourage us with Your love for us. I pray, O oh God, that yes, our heads would understand, but what we need in this, mor- in this moment is not new information. We need information to become new. We need our hearts to be riveted by Your beauty and Your glory. We need to be convinced deep down within our soul and taste and see that You are good. So move, I pray. For the glory of Your name and the good of Your people, we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. 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 pastor friend of mine used this illustration. I wanted to begin with it. Fire department has its job to go and to respond to the emergencies around the city. And I was going to do some role play and have four people come up and begin to do this, but you don't know me. I don't know exactly how this all rolls. That might like really weird you out. So I decided not to do that. So let's just, let's just walk through it together. Four people standing up here and they all have a role. Their obligation then is to figure out what they're going to do. Pretend this fire truck is one of those kinds that are driven on both ends. You've seen those long beasts. Okay. And so you got to have a driver at the front. You got to have a driver at the back. And then let's say two or three jobs in the middle, somebody on the ladder, somebody on the hoses, somebody to operate the sirens. And so everybody is sitting here and you sit there and you go, okay, what's your job? Okay, my job is to drive. Okay, what's your job? My job is to make sure the sirens are working. Okay, what's your job? Your job is to handle the hoses. What's your job? It's to handle the ladders. What's your job? It's to drive the back end. And you look at them all and you say, no. That's not your job. Your job is to put out fires. Your job is to put out fires. And what is our job as a church? Yeah, it is to serve as a greeter. It is to serve with the kids. It is to serve as a pastor or a deacon. It is to lead community groups or small groups in homes. It is even what is our job. 
It could be to be an engineer or to be a teacher or to serve in the government, to work retail. These are our jobs. But ultimately, I want to encourage you, whether you're a stay-at-home mom, whether you are single, whether you are a parent, whatever your role is, your job is to be and make followers of Jesus. All those other things are means towards that end. Your job is not just to make sure that you have enough money and that your family or yourself is secure, that retirement is bolstered, or that you get the promotion and that you feel strong. Your job is that God has given you the gifts and skills that He's given you so that you would shine as a light in the place where you are for the name of Jesus Christ. Your job is really simple. It is to be and to make followers of Jesus. And we cannot mix it up. If you only focus on the hoses, you can take the hoses and just drink from the water. Make sure the pressure is low, but good night. Just drink from the water. No, you're to use the hoses to put out the fire. You're to, to use your law degree, your doctor degree, your government position, to use the fact that you are a parent or to use the fact that you are a spouse, to use every aspect of life to be and to make followers of Jesus Christ. It's not rocket science, it's not difficult, and it's not just for the varsity tier of Christianity. It is for everyone. 101, when Jesus Christ invades the heart, His Spirit comes in, He delights to use imperfect people to do His great and amazing task. So don't disqualify yourself. Don't believe you're overqualified. This is what it is to be a part of the people of God. It is to know His love and absorb it and then be used as a conduit to give it away no matter what relationship you're in. So, as we dive into 1 John chapter 4, John is writing this letter to help disciple these people. To help them to know that God loves them to help them to stay away from false teaching and to not dive into things that would harm and ruin their lives. And then also to encourage them to love their family, that is the church. To love one another and also be lights in the dark world in which He has called us to live and to work and to be. So John is passionate, he is teaching, he is living, he is praying, he is proclaiming, he is writing this letter so that disciples would be made of us, of them. So, how do we fulfill our purpose and rise to the task of making disciples? Three things. It's when we become convinced that one, God is love. Two, when we live love. We live like we are loved rather than live like we've been abandoned or rejected or that God is not for us. And then three is when loved ones love. you got to know that God is love. you got to live in that love. And then, it's just a fact, loved ones give it away. They love. This is what John is teaching us from chapter 4. Of 1 John. So let's dive in. First one. God is love. Let's look at verses 8 and 9. 
Look at verses 8 and 9. Anyone who does not love does not know God because... What are the next three words? Say them with me. God is love. God is love. He says in verse 9, In this the love of God was made manifest among us that God sent His only Son into the world so that we might live through Him. God is love. We are doers. That is our world. Production is praised. Accomplishment gets promotion. And that's why it's almost disorienting to begin where I'm beginning. It's disorienting because the Christian life is actually primarily about receiving, not about doing. Don't put them in antithesis. It's not either or, but it is first, then second. The Christian life is first about receiving before we are giving. Before now, love is a command for you to do. It's a commitment of God for you. Let me say it again. Before love is a command for you to do, it's a commitment of God to you. Before it's an act by you, it's an act upon you. You are a receiver of God's love. Or you're not a follower of Jesus. Do all kinds of things for Him, but that does not make you a child. What makes you a child is you are helpless. You realize you cannot save yourself and that Christ is your only hope. And by simple faith alone, the size of a mustard seed, God comes and He justifies and He makes you right and He wrecks your life and He builds you up by His love. You're a receiver or you're not part of the family. It's disorienting. And let's just go to the end of the passage and work our way backwards. Verse 19. That's where I ended, right? Verse 19. We love, why? Because He first loved us. Because He first loved us. That's why John in this passage, although many when they read this, they hear, love one another, love one another, love one another, love one another, do, 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 do. John takes this message of God is love and interweaves it throughout the passage like shoelaces on a shoe or like yeast throughout a piece of bread. It is this sense that God is love is what upholds and undergirds the fact that we love one another. You can't have the second unless you have the first. God is love. And interwoven throughout this passage, you begin to see John wanting the people to be convinced That God loves them. He wants you to be convinced that you are loved and precious and adored and pursued. Where do I get this? Remember, we're hitting the backwards button. Verse 19 says you love because He first loved you. Verse 16, what does He say? God is love. Verse 11, go backwards again. Beloved, if God so loved us, if that's true, then love one another. If God so loved us, go backwards to verse 10. In this is love, 
Not that we have loved God, but that He what? Loved us. Go backwards just a little bit more. Verse 9. Verse 9, He says, And this is the love of God that He sent His only Son. And then go back just a little bit more. Verse 8. God is love. And then go back just a little bit more in verse 7. For love is from God. I can't tell you how many times I've read this passage and come away with what all I need to do better. Look at the anchor of our doing. It is you are loved. You are loved. God is love is where we must begin. Do you know you are loved and are you convinced of the love of God for you? I just want you to sit for a second. Because I don't believe you're convinced of it. At least not all the time. This is not mental assent. It is, is your heart riveted by the fact that the God of the universe loves those who are completely undeserving of love? If you were convinced that God loved you, you would never get defensive. Never. Because you are secure in His love for you. If you were convinced of His love for you, you would never find yourself hopeless. Because when God is present and fully loving towards you, there's always hope. If you were convinced of His love for you, you would never run after other lovers as supreme. Whether it's a significant other, whether it's a spouse, whether it's kids, whether it's job, whether it's possessions, you would never replace God on the throne of your life. Because you're convinced that He's with you and that's enough. Anxiety would be no more if you were convinced of His love. If you were convinced of His love, you would hate what God hates and you would love what God loves. You're loved. And the greatest aim of the Christian life is to know God and to know His love for us. For His glory And for His children. If the love of God is poured out into our hearts, as it says in Romans chapter 5, by the Holy Spirit, then it will be inevitable that love comes out. Many of us struggle to love others because we haven't stopped to meditate on, reflect, and be still with a God who first loved us. That's why people get burnt out is because they replace the first and the second commandment and they flip them. They love their neighbor as themselves before they are still to know the love of God for them. Before they love God with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength. Every morning, make coffee for my, for my family as I have a coffee pot there. If I put coffee in the filter, coffee comes out. But if I put Kool-Aid in the filter and no coffee beans... What's going to come out? Kool-Aid. That's just how it works, right? So, what comes into the pot is what I pour out of the pot. What comes into the heart, the love of God for us, is what will come out of our lives. It is the principle of 1 John 4. What are you soaking in? What are you convinced of? What is filling your heart day by day, moment by moment, will affect how you love. Now, 
How does He prove to us that He loves us? How does He show us that He loves us? I had one person that gave feedback. Front row. Probably, how old? I'm about to say, a little bit under ten. She said, by dying on the cross for us. Out of the mouth of babes. It's precious. Our God sent His only Son. It says it in verse 9. Look at it with me. Oh, may we never get over it. Verse 9, in this the love of God was made manifest among us. It was put on full display, 4D as it were, that God sent His only Son into the world. That's how we know love. Go down to verse 10. In this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the wrath absorber for our sins. The propitiation is the Word. Do you get it? Your small deceit, your trading your job, and putting it in the place of God is heinous treason. When we meditate upon the lust of the flesh, the pride of possessions, when we think on those things, it should genuinely, in light of God's beautiful, radiant holiness and love, it should induce almost vomit-type experiences. It is heinous that we would ever doubt His good love for us. We are filled with placing body image over our Savior. We are filled with disordered loves, as St. Augustine said. It's where we make possessions greater than people and people greater than God. Disordered loves. And God, staring down the barrel of that gun that should be facing right here, He pointed it at His Son. And the sinless Savior who knew no sin took the dump truck load of all of history and all of humanity's sin of all those who would trust in Him and it was dumped upon His shoulders. The weight unbearable. He poured out His soul. Jesus the Christ, until death. He was numbered with the transgressions. And in this amazing moment of sacrifice, He turned us from deserving objects of scorn to objects of favor. He gave His Son in order that we might be sons and daughters. He abandoned His Son so that we would never be alone. Never powerless in Christ. Never impotent in spiritual provision. His Son was crushed for our sins. What grace. What love. If you ever doubt His greatness, look at the cross. If you ever doubt that He's enough, look at the cross. If you ever doubt your value, look at the cross. This is when we begin to really plead that God would help simple things. To become profound. 
You know this in your head. I remember. I remember walking with Jesus in college. And I genuinely was pursuing Him, but I was deep down arrogant. I genuinely got to a point where I said, you know, I feel like I know a lot about Christianity. I've kind of got a lot of this down. I think, I think, I'm, I think I've got this. And when people would say, do you know the Gospel? Yeah, I got it. Because I was treating the Gospel as a book to read and then put on the shelf. Never to be revisited again. Rather than something that affects my life moment by moment, day by day, until I see Him face to face. It was arrogance. It was knowledge to be obtained rather than a relationship to be pursued. So what did God do when we were rebellious? Well, I think a beautiful capture of this is Hosea chapter 2. In the book of Hosea, there's this crazy image of the people of God saying that, or God was saying to the people of Israel that they were um, treating Him and their relationship with Him like uh, you would go after a prostitute. That was this sense of you had forgotten God, you would go after other Baals. It says you would trade God for the possessions. You have neglected Me. And he says, verse 13, Hosea chapter 2, I will punish her for the feast days of the Baals when she burned offerings to them and adorned herself with her ring and jewelry and went after other lovers and forgot me, declares the Lord. That's verse 13. And then it's almost like whiplash on what happens one verse later. And he says, therefore, okay, take it in. You punch me in the face. You took all my possessions. You stole my family. Therefore, what would you think would come next? I'm coming after you with all I got. I'm going to give you one back. God says, therefore, behold, I will allure her. He says, bring her into the wilderness and speak tenderly to her. He goes on for verse after verse after verse of how He's going to pursue them when they're in the wilderness. How He is going to remind him them of His love for them. He is going after them with everything He has in the midst of their sin and rebellion. Is that your view of God? Or when you do wrong, do you feel like you've got to make it right in order for then God to even look your direction? This is the cross. The cross of Jesus Christ says the debt has been paid. Come to me. Repentance is not a four letter word. It's an invitation into the only way you can be refreshed in Christ. And so I was sitting in a class just a, a couple weeks ago in our church with uh, we do a leadership training thing. And as we had a bunch of people sitting there, I immediately brought them in because it's how we try to train people on how to be disciple makers, how to make disciples. And we're sitting there and I gave them no warning at all. We just sat down and usually they're coming after work. They're exhausted. They're expecting me to teach them and them just kind of take in information. And I said, OK. Right now, I need your answers. Somebody has just come to you and they are weak. And they are battling with self-condemnation. And they're more aware of their failures than they are anything else. What are you going to say to them in this moment? 
Go. This is how life works, is it not? The coworker comes up to you out of left field. You're focused on a project and all of a sudden, boom, they want to have a talk, a serious talk about something. You're not expecting it. If you got kids, this is definitely how it goes. It's usually late at night. You're exhausted. You just want to do everything to get them in a room and close the door. And it's just like, okay, get in there. Covers down. Be quiet. Okay, I love you. Let's pray. God. And then, you know, it's just like whatever we can do. Let's just make it happen. But then it's like, but daddy, why is there pain in the world? And you're like, good night. Can we do this tomorrow? You know, tomorrow. We definitely great question. Let's just do it tomorrow. Spouses, you're exhausted after a day of work and they want to talk. And men are like looking cross-eyed like, okay, you want to talk. This is good. I know I need to listen. What do we do? This is how it works. What are you going to say when someone says, I am weak? What are you going to say when someone is more aware of their failures than they are the goodness of God? What are you going to say? And they were so good. They just back and forth. One just said, I'm going to listen. That's what you do. Next person said, I'm going to show empathy. I'm going to hug them. Or I'm just going to pray with them rather than try to be the answer person. I'm like, yes, that's how you make disciples. You come alongside them. But then I said, but what if they, what if they really want to know? Is there a sense of hope? What are you going to say? I said, tell them what God says about them as a child. What are you going to say? And we just took time in that room and just said, what does God say about you? What does God say about you? I have a list of verses. This is what God says about you. Therefore, there is now no condemnation. No condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And you are in Christ Jesus not because of your good works. You are in Christ Jesus by faith alone. There is no condemnation for you. Psalm 139, you are fearfully and wonderfully made. Do you believe God views you that way? Fearfully, wonderfully made. John 10, he says, I am a good shepherd and I talk to you. And my sheep, they hear my voice. Do you know God loves to talk with you? Do you believe that? Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd and in Him there will be no longings unmet. He meets them all. He leads you beside the still waters. He restores your soul. He takes you when you are upside down in your emotions and He sets you upside right. Whatever that means. Romans 5.8 He demonstrates His love for you. And that while you are still a wretched sinner, He sent His Son to die for you. Colossians 3.12 He calls you beloved. And He says, You are My chosen ones. Romans 8, 31 through 33. If God is for us, who could be against us? Romans 8, 32. If he did not spare his own son, but gave him over for us all, how will he not then do the easiest thing and graciously give you everything that you need? 
There's nothing that can separate us from His love. Hebrews 13 says, He will never leave you nor forsake you. Exodus 14, 14. I have it on a plaque above our bathroom as we go in and it says, it's Moses standing on the brink of the Red Sea and God looks at him and He says, I will fight for you. All you have to do is be still. Is that your view of God? He's fighting for you right now. Jesus is praying for you right now. 1 John 2.2 2, I'm writing this so that you won't sin, but if you do sin, I have, there's an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the Righteous One. 1 John 3.1 Behold what kind of love the Father has for you that you would be called a child. You'd be called a child. And then we have this hanging up on a window in our house. Zephaniah 3.17 Is this your view of God over you right now? The Lord your God is in your midst. A mighty one who will save. He's in your midst. A mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by His love. He will exult over you with loud singing. And even if your singing is off key, His is not. If I leave you with nothing else today, it is, may God by His amazing mercy in this moment overwhelm the weak and remind them that they are loved. Overwhelm the self-righteous and remind them that they are sinners in need of this gracious Savior. Overwhelm the people who feel like they have everything in their own strength and say, everything that you have is a gift from me. To overwhelm people who are in doubt or who are lonely with the fact that He loves you. God is love. And the only way you'll love others is to be convinced of that. And so that's where he goes in verse 9. This is the second point. That is, live loved. The first one is the longest, so take heart. <laughs> live loved, verse 3. Or not verse 3, verse 9. I said that already. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us that God sent His only Son into the world so that we might, and what's the next three words? Live through Him. Okay? We'll say it again. In this, the love of God was made put on display in our midst that God sent His only Son into the world. Here's the purpose. Here's the reason He did that. That we might live through Him. We might live through Him. We might be disciples and we might make disciples. We might live through Him. What does it mean to live through Him? I don't know if you've ever poured oil into a car or ever tried to... Take, take gasoline and put it into a, a gas can using a funnel. But when you do, every bit of the oil that you pour through the funnel touches the funnel, then goes through that little narrow part and gets to its destination. Well, this is what he is saying. The love of God is the funnel. And he pours his love into our lives and it needs to touch every part of our life. 
So our life is the funnel. His love being poured in. It's got to touch every part of our life to come out and to touch others. You follow? What does it look like for the love of God to touch every part of our life, not just segments of our life? David says, with my whole heart, I seek you. Just just let that come over you. Can we say that? Oh God, with my whole heart, I want nothing left to myself. Every part of me, I want to seek you. What does it look like? What does it look like to live loved? What does it look like for every part of your life to soak in Him? Well, it can mean a lot of things and we could spend a lot of time here. But I think the one thing that I think we should focus in on is verse 16. Look at verse 16. He says in verse 16, Therefore, or so, we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. So we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. Are you convinced that you are loved? Are you convinced that the mighty one above loves you? Then live in that love. This is the key first to personal holiness. Many of us have become okay with what God is not okay with. Let me say it again. Many of us, because of cultural influence, because of just choosing to participate in something that didn't feel right the first or the second time, but now just feels like you're swimming in water. You're just used to it. We have begun to become okay with what God is not okay with. And He says, I love you. And because of my love for you, There can't be any rivals in the heart. True joy will not be found when secondary things become primary. C.S. Lewis says you will be able to fully enjoy secondary things. Your job, leisure, your family. Only when first things are first. That is God Himself. And so, he says, look at the end of verse 16. He says, God is love, and whoever abides in love abides in God. God abides in Him. What does it mean to abide in His love? Andrew Murray in his book, Abide in Christ, talks about it like this. He says, how foolish would it be if you're climbing up a mountain? And as you climb up that mountain, it took probably two hours, three hours of sweat and exhaustion to get to the top of this mountain. And how crazy would it be? The whole aim is to get to the top and to do what? To look out. What if you get to the top and you're just like, got up there and then you start sprinting down the hill? That's not the point. It would be like saying, oh, I cannot wait to go to the beach. And you drive like 10 hours to get to the coast. And all of a sudden you get there and it's like, boom, done. Great trip. Okay. No. What's the point? The point is to go and to not just arrive at a destination, but to abide there. To dwell there. To look and enjoy. To be overwhelmed by the beauty that you see. Abide in Christ. 
Tozer says this. He says, God, help us to engage you with all of our senses. Do you realize he, he tells us to, in the Scriptures, implore all of our senses. Taste and see that the Lord is good. Look and behold the kingdom. Hear my voice. He even says, smell the garments of God's righteousness. Employ all the senses to go after God. This is an experience. I know sometimes that can be a you know, crazy word sometimes for some people. Like, oh no. He's talking about experience. It's experience rooted in truth, but it's definitely an experience. It is emotional. It's emotion rooted in truth, but it's not sans affection. It is filled with affection. That's why our church's name is Treasuring Christ Church, not just Believe in Christ Church. Not just think with your brain about Christ Church. It is love Him. Enjoy Him. Taste and see that He is good. Think about the best meal you've ever had and all of the enjoyment. I mean, you usually can't eat a meal without going, mmm, mmm, you know, some type of groan. You don't have to do that while you're on your face before God, but good night, go after Him. I don't have to convince you to eat your favorite meal. And He is saying, when we run to the vista, it is not just, yes, I read my three verses, I'm done. It is the living God is there. He is with us. And He's here. He is here. And He loves you. Albert Einstein said said this, He who can no longer pause to wonder and stand wrapped in awe is as good as dead. His eyes are closed. There was a season as a pastor in my life when I could not stop. It was hard for me to stop and be still. I lost the ability to sit and gaze at God and to stand back in awe and wonder. It seemed inefficient and ineffective at times. I couldn't just sit in my backyard and and love the look of grass and just sit and enjoy it. I just couldn't sit in my backyard and listen for the birds and be astounded at their sounds. That was just a waste of time. And so you might object, like I was struggling to do. I didn't got time to have some stillness. Friends, if we don't, this is when we forget God. Our faith shrinks. Our confidence diminishes. Our courage lessens. Doubt creeps in. You begin to love yourself more than anyone else around. You grow miserable and you don't know why. Your prayers stop or they become shallow or filled with only your motives. And we might object, I'm too busy. I'm too busy. This is not effective. Please, be less productive as you define it, in order to gaze on God. What's more inefficient? Stopping and being still with God or falling in love with another woman because you did not stop to be still and know God? What is more inefficient? To stop and be still with God or to give your life 
for money and power only to be let down and to lose the relationships that are closest to you? What is really more inefficient? Oh, friends, some of us has lost hunger. We've lost energy. And you just need to hear God singing over you saying, come and be with me. Come and be with me. I want to know you. I want to know your fears. I want to know your tears. I want to know everything about you. Hold nothing back. I'm not afraid of your process. I'm not afraid of your doubts. You don't have to have it all together. Bring everything to me because I love you. I love you. Live loved, friends. Because if you are convinced that you are loved, then all of a sudden, love comes out. What is the purpose of our lives? It is to, yes, love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, but it is to love your neighbor as yourself. It is to make disciples. And then all of a sudden, through these new lenses that God loves you, you look at your job differently, you look at your money differently, you look at your time differently, you look at your kids differently, you look at your relationships differently. Everything is changed. Everything. Because you are convinced that you are loved by a Savior who proved it by giving His only Son. And now what does it look like to give that away? It's no longer just a burden. It is overflow. It's joy. Doesn't mean it's not hard. God knows it's hard. But let's look at... If we hit the rewind button and start at the very first verse I said, I just want you to hear this. Verse 7 beloved let us love one another for love is from god do you see that that reasoning loved ones it's like a sandwich loved ones love one another love is from god i've labored these these points because the only way you have the substance of loving one another is to be convinced that you're sandwiched in between the love of God. You get it? So, what does it look like? What does it look like to love one another? You just read a covenant up there. A covenant that was something that is rehearsed. And in there, it is being convinced of who God is for you, but it is also saying how much we need to love one another. There are over 31 one another commands in the Scriptures. Forgive one another. Listen to one another. Pray for one another. Weep with those who weep. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Serve one another. Comfort one another. Give generously to one another. Teach one another. Equip one another. Do good to one another. Bless one another. Do you get it? It's not all of them, in case you were counting. John thirteen thirty five. By this all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. So, verse 11 helps us here. Look at verse 11. Because loved ones love. This is our last point. Loved ones love. Look, verse 11. Beloved, if God so loved us, we ought to love one another. Ought. There's a, there's a debtor language. There's an obligation. If you have a creditor and you owe them money, that money that then you make 
is not just your own. You have to pay them off. Similarly, the Scriptures say you have been loved so deeply that there is actually a horizontal obligation that you, your time is not your own. It is to be spent with this grid of loving one another. It's an ought. It's a debtor thing. I ought because I have been. And therefore, you don't spend your time in ways that are just about you, but how you love. And then he goes in verse 12, how you've been loved. Verse 12, no one has ever seen God. Okay? Why does he say that? Because, look at verse 12, if we love one another, God abides in us and His love is perfected in us. Now this is pretty amazing. I love this. No one has ever seen God. Well, how in the world will they see Him? In how you love one another. Well, what does that mean? Well, He says if you abide in God and then you give away His love, His love is being perfected in you. It doesn't mean your love is perfect, meaning no problems, no mistakes. It means you are being made complete. Let's take the analogy. There's nothing more rewarding as a parent than to love a child and to raise them up in God and then to see them flip around, enjoy God, confess Him as their Lord and follow Him and then with their mouth proclaim that Jesus is the only hope and give Him away to somebody else. It is the cycle is complete, so to speak. It has been perfected. Do you follow that? It is when you give it away, the person owns it, and then not only do they own it, but they own it so much that they give it to somebody else. It completes the cycle. That's the way it is for disciple making. How do you know that you have accomplished a task that assumes constant growth? Answer? You grow and embrace Jesus as your only hope. You give Him away to someone else. They embrace Jesus as their only hope and then they turn around and don't just stay as a silo. They give Him away to someone else. All of a sudden, the cycle is complete. The love of God has been perfected in you as you enjoy, give, and watch somebody else give. One of the greatest contexts to do that is here on Sunday mornings. When you come on Sunday mornings, the greatest temptation, I I get this, we have multiple pastors at our church, which means we have a lot of people that preach, so I get to sit and enjoy services. I get this. It's it's easy to want to just come and to not prepare, to soak it all up, and then to bolt out the door. But the whole aim, when Jesus says, love as you have been loved, it is to be intentional. Come in thinking, how can I be intentional today with my neighbor? It could just be, how's your day? And just listening. It could just be, my heart is burdened. As we were singing, you came to my mind and I just want to pray for you. It could just be, you begin to see some tears in somebody's eyes and you just go up and say, I want you to know I care about you. Is there anything I can do for you? Can I be here for you in some way? There's this sense of intentionality when we come together. The same when you do small groups in homes. I sat down with 
the crafts and the knights uh, yesterday for uh, breakfast. They crazy, generous, hospitable people. Love them dearly. So I'm sitting there. They have a spread. I mean, like waffles and eggs. And would you like a parfait, a little bit of yogurt and some fruit? And I was just like, this is amazing. You know, would you like a little orange juice and some coffee? Yeah, sure. And so I'm just, you know, like plates like this, you know, you need a crane to kind of move it around. And so we're sitting there eating. And here's what it looked like. Man, that food is good. Hey, how are you guys doing? You just hear about life. And then they said, we're going through judges. And I said, hey, tell me what, tell me what God's been teaching you about judges. And then every one of them just began to pop off. I mean, it was so good. I like pulled out my phone and I was like, okay, this is good stuff. I'm taking it down. And they were like, are you like not interested in life right now? Like, are you really focused here? I'm like, no, this is good stuff. And I'm going to forget it in two seconds after I eat a bite if I don't write it down. So, and, and then all of a sudden we shifted over to, you know, just some things that we were uh, enjoying about life. We talked to my kids. We were just doing life together around a meal. It wasn't, we were always preaching a sermon to each other, even though we love to talk for a living. <laughs> Meals are beautiful places to be intentional. Friends, be intentional. Do life together. Have people in your home. Talk about life, but also don't miss the opportunity to talk about God. What do you love about God? What's He teaching you right now? This is not for the varsity Christian. This is for anyone. Friends, remember, God is love. Be convinced of it. Be convinced of it. And lived as one who is loved. Because when you abide with Him, you are still with Him, you grow in what it means to enjoy the greatness of Him, loved ones then will love. And you will dream dreams on how to use your job and your life to love one another and also love those who have never heard of the beauty of Jesus. Let's pray. Father in Heaven, I ask in this moment that You would encourage us, You would uphold us, you would remind us of Your faithfulness. Thank You so much for taking care of us and proving Your love on the cross. And I pray, O oh God, if anyone does not know You, that they would surrender their life wholly to You. And I pray that now as we have this Lord's Supper, that You would direct our hearts to enjoy You. In Jesus' name.